Welcome back to the Flex Diet Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. On this podcast, we talk about all things to increase your performance in the gym, add some more muscle, and improve body composition, all without destroying your health in the process. And today, this one fits exactly within that wheelhouse. We've got my buddy, Dr. Hunter Waldman, on the program today. We're going to talk all about the use of ketones, uh, metabolic flexibility, and a supplement called astaxanthin, uh, which you may not have heard of before. You may recognize uh, Dr. Hunter Waldman from the Flex Diet certification. Uh, inside of it, he is one of the experts uh, talking about metabolic flexibility and his research. He is currently a assistant professor at the University of North Alabama, and we get into talking about the use of ketones, especially ketone esters, to potentially enhance different aspects of performance, and especially related to potentially cognition under higher levels of fatigue. So if you're looking at athletic performance, or even just in the gym, we all know that as you have higher levels of fatigue, you get a little bit more tired. It's harder to stay present and make good decisions. Um, could the use of ketone esters be beneficial in these circumstances? What's cool about ketone esters is you can literally be in a state of ketosis within about 15 to 20 minutes of consuming them. Um, as a side note, I've been extremely interested in the use of ketone esters for Man, many years now, I remember on Facebook the other day, there was a little thing that popped up that I was on a panel at ISSN, I think seven years ago now, with uh, Dr. Lane Norton, Dr. Dom D'Agostino, myself, and we were talking about the use of ketone esters, uh, salts, and a ketogenic diet in general. Um, also, I am a person who's helping at uh, Tecton, so they have a new ketone ester, so I'm helping them with some science, looking at what is actually going on with these ketone esters. So I may be biased uh, in that, but wanted to include that for full disclosure. We'll include a link to uh, all of their information there. And the great thing about the Tecton ketone ester is it tastes actually pretty good. If you've tried any other esters, we talk about this on the podcast too, they are not very good <laughs> at all. So how can ketones potentially be helpful? How does this relate to the concept of metabolic flexibility? And then how does astaxanthin relate to all of this? Astaxanthin is another compound I've been interested in for many years. I've presented to at least one other company, I won't say who, but several years ago they were looking at a fat burner, quote-unquote, that was not a stimulant, and astaxanthin may have some uh, interesting properties in there, so we discuss all of that too. So I think you'll really enjoy this podcast, and as a reminder, if you are looking for ways to increase your performance, become more robust, anti-fragile, just generally much harder to kill, and your nutrition and training and sleep are pretty decent, you've got those pillars down, check out the Phys Flex certification. This is based on the idea of physiologic flexibility. How can you train the four areas 
these are called homeostatic regulators, that your body has to remain constant. So one of them is gonna be temperature. We know that humans are what they call homeotherms. We like about 98.6, it's about 97.7 Fahrenheit actually. And we can go into different areas of exposure such as sauna, steam rooms, and you can get super crazy and submerge yourself in cold water. And there are some benefits to that. So think of this as expanding the areas of which your physiology can operate because of these specific adaptations. And it's my bias that as you expand these into these four critical areas, you will generally be able to recover faster and you're just gonna be a lot harder to kill. And one of those areas is expansion of metabolic flexibility. This would be pillar number three, which is fuels. And this is also expanded into the areas of high carbohydrate use, where you spin off a bunch of lactate, hydrogen ions, and then also very high use of fat as a fuel with low carbohydrates. And this would be the use of a ketogenic diet or specifically ketones themselves as a fuel. So the physiologic flexibility certification opens September 18th. Go to physiologicflexibility.com. You can still get on the wait list. It will be open September 18th through September 25th. You can go to that same link if you are interested in enrolling in the certification then. Of course, we would love to have you. We've got some free gifts there for people who get on the wait list there. So go to physiologicflexibility.com for all the information or hit me up with any questions you have. And enjoy this great conversation with Dr. Hunter Waldman all about ketones, metabolic flexibility, and the supplement astaxanthine.
Hello. What's up, Mike? How are you? I'm good. How are you, doctor? Good, good. You're so funny calling me doctor. You don't have to, especially with you being a doctor as well. <laughs> it reminds me of, was it Fletch or was it Spies Like Us where they're like, doctor? doctor, <laughs> yeah, doctor. Exactly. <laughs> where does it end? Yeah, every time you email me and you say doc, I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> I do I it bet. sometimes now just to almost annoy people, but yeah, I don't know. It's just almost more of a for me, I don't want to say comic relief because getting a PhD is a pain in the ass, but yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I get it. It's <laughs> definitely, it's always interesting when I meet people that you could tell it's just gotten to their head and it's like, yeah, we've all been there, buddy. So it's all good though. Yeah. The funniest one I had years ago, my virtual assistant booked a hotel in Columbus, Ohio. I was down there for the, oh, the lead FTS to learn to train thing. Cool. And so I'm checking in and She's looking at the name and she's, oh, okay, how are you today? And you could see her looking down, trying to find my name. She's Mr. Nelson. Oh, Dr. Nelson. I said, oh, I'm good. And she's like, oh, what are you a doctor in? And I said, oh, I did a PhD in exercise physiology. She's like, oh, you don't cut people up? I'm like, no, I'm not a surgeon. She's like, oh, and she looks so disappointed. <laughs> she checks me in and she gives me my key. She's like, here's your key, Mr. Nelson. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. My wife, I tell people all the time, she constantly, if someone finds out I, I did a PhD, it, it's great and all, but they'll say, oh, Dr. Waldman and Erica's, no, he's not, a, he's not that kind of doctor. <laughs> he keeps me humbled. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. You got some great stuff going on now. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. You know, it's funny. I was listening to your podcast with uh, Dr. Brianna Stubbs and we run. Oh, yeah. Some- run in similar circles we've never met or talked but i've got some ketone work with dominique dom right now and brendan Egan, oh. andrew kutnick and oh yeah it was interesting because i was listening to that podcast and she went off the radar for a little bit especially with podcasts and she mentioned that and that's been me too ever since the phd wrapping that up i'd done some podcasts then but the p it was just so brutal and i needed time to get a balance again so i just went off the radar and got rid of social media and and just recently started bringing that stuff back you and i had talked about that but so this is my first podcast in probably five years so i think your oh, podcast wow. is just bringing yeah. everyone out of the woodworks so that's cool that, yeah people probably figured out in the podcast one of the things i like is that I just get to talk to really smart people about questions that i have because like early yeah. on i was kind of you do the thing of, oh, who's a big guest and how do I get distribution? How do I do all sure. this stuff? And then I realized like some of the interviews I was doing, I just didn't like them. I felt yeah. like it sounded yeah. like everything else. And eventually I'm like, I'm not making any money off this. I purposely chosen to have no sponsors. So mm-hmm. nobody can tell me what to say or what to do. I'm like, I'll just talk to cool people that I want to know what they're doing. Great. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. And that's how it should be. If you, when I listen, I listen to your and I listen to Joe Rogan and Huberman and these different individuals. It's really these people, you could tell they're genuinely interested in the people that they're bringing on. And it's not, doesn't sound to me, at least when I listen to all of you guys, it doesn't sound like it is you're pursuing a name for the podcast. It is, you could tell that the you as the podcaster, that you're very much interested in the conversations that you're having. And that's always apparent to the listeners. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I think. Yeah. People have an opinion of Joe Rogan. I like his stuff overall, but I think yeah, the fact I, that he just does whatever he wants and generally sounds interested in the topic to yeah. me is just, that's cool. And yeah. the fact that 
a human the same way. You could have two to three hour long conversations about science. And some of those podcasts will be like some of the top rated podcasts. Yeah. Like that actually gives me a bunch of hope that people actually still care about science. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. Podcast is really, I heard that science is primarily learn through communicate verbal communication and i agree that to be true that that is true and to be able to talk a lot of people aren't trained you know this but a lot of people aren't trained to read the research they might Correct. Take, just read the title and walk away with it and that's what they're spewing but when someone gets onto a podcast to listen to what we have to say we're able to take that research that we've read and make it digestible for the wider audience. And that's why it's so attractive to me to listen to podcasts or be a part of them is it really is an ability that we've been trained in to get this information out to people and hopefully a way that they can use in a practical sense to improve their lives and in some manner. Yeah. And it's a different skill set to go into something where you don't know a lot of the questions ahead of time yeah. and to be able to make intelligent conversation out of it versus if you're not really so deep in that area, you could probably buffalo your way through a presentation. If you put enough time and effort into it and you had it sure. super polished up, I think you could get your way through it. But I also think people now are able to disseminate that and they look mm -hmm. for, it's like the argument I've made for years of like, why would I buy a CD, for example, of a live band? In yeah, my right. definition, it's not going to sound as good as a studio, but you want to hear like those different interactions with the crowd. You want to hear the slight imperfections. You want to hear, oh, they did this solo just a little bit different. Yeah. Like I think you humans want those types of slight imperfections and variability sure. in the system. Absolutely. Totally agree. Yeah. Tell me about what you're, I know you've got a couple of studies on you're working on now. Did you want to? Talk about some of the ketone stuff first, and then maybe some of the metabolic flexibility stuff after that. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. our, I'm, I'm at the University of North Alabama. I'm the director of our exercise biochem lab. And our lab, I've got three doc students under me right nice. now. So yeah, it, it is. It's a lot, but mentoring them has been awesome. And then we've got a couple of master's students and then a ton of undergrads. But my lab is primarily, we, we've got obviously multiple faculty members, but my lab's primarily focused on three separate areas. Right now, it's astaxanthin is a big aspect, which probably we'll dive heavily into today. Yep. Exogenous ketone work, and, and those studies we're wrapping up right now. We've already wrapped up. We're actually writing on them. So I just had a meeting with Dr. Diagostino and Dr. Egan and Dr. Kupnik, nice. and they're all a part of this. So those All great studies, dudes, too. Oh yeah. Brilliant. Super nice guys. Brilliant. Yeah. I was the primary variable in the, so we did some ketone monoester work and trained females, division one trained females. So step beyond your typical recreational athlete. And we were looking at physical performance and cog cognitive performance. My big argument right now, based on a lot of the isotope work that's come out by dear love and, and some of the Howard and some of these other ones is that it's clear that beta-hydroxybutyrate is probably not a major contributor to muscle energetic demands, which makes sense because from an evolutionary perspective, BHB was likely elevated during periods of starvation, yeah. low carbohydrate availability. And so the muscle, there's saturation kinetics with BHB, whereas when you start getting 
anywhere between like three and six millimoles, the muscle essentially like limits itself on how much it can take up. And that mm. makes sense because if it could just oxidize all of that BHB, there'd be nothing left over for the heart or the brain. I would yeah. argue probably the greedy little, organs. That's right. A little more important <laughs> maybe than muscle. So with Deer Love's work showing that regardless of the concentration of BHB, I think they, in that study, it was like two and four millimoles and then multiple intensities, cycling intensities, they looked at oxidation of BHB at the muscle levels only about 5%. So yeah. the argument oh. then becomes, well, what's happening? Is it acting as a signaling metabolite? There's a lot of gene transcription, which is actually, to take a step back, the way I even got into the astaxanthin world was all of my interest in exogenous ketones and happened to come in their effect on the mitochondria. Mm. I came across astaxanthin and its impact on the mitochondria and that led me down. So it's like same rabbit hole, <laughs> but two different rabbits. And so yeah. I really fell in love with both of them. But on the, again, going back to the ketone work, my thought was, well, all of those ketones and all that beta hydroxybutyrate is likely going to either the heart or the brain or both. And so I wanted to design a study looking at some cognitive measures. And so brought that whole team on. We wrapped up that work this spring. We've got two papers. In one paper, we induced mental fatigue. And we looked at several cognitive measures from low and high cognitive domains, task switching, incongruent flanker, your ability to decipher and inhibit certain stimuli, your reaction time, did that pre and post following mental fatigue. We didn't find anything between the ketone monoester and placebo. That's obviously still, this is all in write up right now. But the second paper that we did where we have, it's even more intense. We have all types of metabolic data and physical data, physical performance data. And then we've also got additional cognitive measures in that found nothing between for the physical performance. There was no detriment, but no improvement. Hmm. But the cognitive side is awesome. I'm super pumped to get that out. Hmm. I think we're going to submit that to MSSE. And we found that with the ketone monoester that not only were there greater improvements in that with the ketone monoester, but that there were also improvements in cognitive measures just immediately post endurance exercise, which was pretty cool. Hmm. And, and the research is clear on that. But if you ingest the ketone monoester, not only do you get an improvement in markers of cognition post-exercise, but they seem to be, there seems to be a synergistic effect when you take it, when you take ketone monoesters, because the magnitude of change was even greater with the ketone monoester. And so we've got that work again and write up and everybody's kind of getting feedback on it, but we'll be submitting that hopefully in the next month uh, and getting that work out pretty soon. And in that one, where you saw the cognitive benefits was, what were you comparing it to? Was it placebo? And then was it another type of ketone ester and then the monoester or was it? Yeah, just so it was a ketone monoester compared to ketone monoester with, or excuse me, carbohydrate alone provided at one gram per minute of exercise. So they essentially did 60 minutes. They did 30 minutes of a graded exercise test. So we based that off their respective watt max. So they did 40%, 45%, all the way up to 65%, if I remember correctly, five minutes at each stage, looked at various markers at each stage, and that took exactly 30 minutes, and then they did a 10-kilometer time trial. Now, we had done mm. all the familiarization, so the CV was real close or real nice. tight. And uh, But no difference in that 10-kilometer time trial, and, and there's several reasons why we chose that, but no difference in those performance markers. But anyways, gave them a carbohydrate alone provided at one gram per minute or 
carbohydrate with the ketone monoester. So they got a relatively low dose, 375 milligrams per kilogram of the ketone monoester, in addition to one gram per minute of carbohydrate. The mm. argument someone could make is, well, they weren't calorically matched. Right. Right. But you have to kind of choose your poison. You could right. go that route, <laughs> but or you could go the route we went. And, and there's pros and cons to either one. And so, you know, I'm sure I'm going to hear it from everybody when the papers do come out. Well, how do you know it wasn't from the additional calories? And how do you, right. you know, my argument's going to be still, though, that we saw there are other studies. Dr. Egan, Brendan Egan has demonstrated mitigated decrements to cognition with ketomonoester. Lemons and quinones, I think so you say that last name, have demonstrated the same thing with ketomonoester ingestion. No one's specifically set up a study to look at cognitive, though. It's always kind of been like a secondary measure. And we really set out to make that like a primary focus of the paper. And so, and, and look what we found. So I think it goes back to the hypothesis, which is if you can overcome the fact that when you elevate beta hydroxybutyrate, which subsequently lowers glucose output, it seems from the liver, but metabolic, metabolic clearance rate when it comes to carbohydrate remains unfazed. And that's what Howard showed with her ice, with that isotope work which is even though beta hydroxybutyrate will lower glucose output, if glucose is still in circulation and available, the muscle can use it. it that, that metabolic clearance rate is un, untouched. So the thought was, well, let's overcome the reduction in glucose output by giving them an exogenous carbohydrate. And the muscle has enough carbohydrate to oxidize. Well, then that BHB when it's provided may go to these other sources thinking cognition and may exert an effect there. And that's what we found. So Again, it has to go through the review process. And so, you know, it's always, I'm excited, of course, but it could turn out they're like, well, you know, you did everything wrong, but we'll see. I mean, I've got some brilliant other, as you mentioned, other, some brilliant researchers on this one. So we're fleshing out any, any potential limitations right now, and then we'll, we'll get that out to everybody. Yeah. And that's a good lesson in how you set up a study too, right? Because a lot of times there's no right or wrong it's like what question are you trying to answer mm -hmm. right and by definition you know people could argue and say oh well maybe you should have done a, a third group of just the ketone only but yeah. then you have to look at your stats you have to look at enrollment you have to look at how many people you're going to get through the trial your trial of exercise yeah. is not a walk in the park either and then as you know if you run that type of style and people start dropping out well that screws your whole statistical power and then if you can't recruit enough people to finish it now you're f for starters and then you're back to where you were before and absolutely <laughs> and, and you you make a great point and i always point out to people cost yeah they're the you know, the keto monoester is not cheap not cheap these were three hour long trials we collected i ran some salivary markers so you're talking about a oh, cool. cost as well yeah I've looked at salivary yeah. cortisol between the different trials and stressors and obviously looked at some capillary blood markers, but that's not cheap. And so you start getting into money and time and, and with the ketone monoester only group, the argument for me is from a, because we're looking at this with trained athletes, I don't know how many athletes are just going to take a ketone monoester and nothing else, unless you start getting into the like keto only group of people that are out there and that's fine. But your typical work, the athletes that we're working with, they're going to take some type of carbohydrate, whether it be a deflated Coke or a Gatorade. 
So we're really trying to mimic real sport nutrition guidelines with the one gram provided per minute of carbohydrate, the keto monoester ingested because it'd be very likely that they would co-ingest those. So, but again, you know, not only what you pointed out, but I'm not married to the research that we do. I'm just, none of these are hills. I know where my biases lie. I do. I am biased in the work that I do, but I'm aware of that. I try and control for those. Of course, I, I'm pumped about exogenous ketones. I want to see some cool stuff from it. So much of the research now is just like, yeah, you know, especially, yeah, it is. And that's what <laughs> it's showing right now. And, <laughs> you know, but some of the stuff on like mTOR signaling, potential glycogen recovery, again, the cognitive side, some of the oxidative stress signaling from exot or mitigation from exogenous ketones, like there's still a lot of stuff to be done with it. But from the performance standpoint, you know, if you ask me right now, and, and Dr. Stubbs really said it beautifully, it's probably, that's probably, you know, a wrap in terms of, is it really going to have an effect? So now we need to start looking at it in other aspects of co-ingestion. Another area I'd like to check it out with would be like caffeine. Mm -hmm. That would be very cool because I think they would work real nicely together. And then, so anyways, we'll see, we'll see. But yeah, it's just, you know, research is fun. It's fun to be able to talk about the results and get some cool findings out there and just kind of see what happens with it. Yeah. And obviously the the Cox paper that was published a long time ago Mm -hmm. used pretty high level cyclist yep. and used carbohydrates with, I believe that was a monoester that was used yep, that you're too, right. from Vicha's group. Yep. Um, and again, they only saw, if I remember right, a 2% increase, but man, you could argue in, in that population, that's pretty damn significant, yep. you know, and in, in higher level athletes. I think Dr. Egan was the one who said, you know, 2%, he gave a talk, a lecture at Ohio State, and he demonstrated that, you know, someone would look at a 2% increase and, and say, well, it's not much of a difference. But when you're talking about almost Olympic style type Olympic athletes, level is huge. 2% is the difference. It was the difference in like 10th place and two, second or third place. It's it's a yeah. huge job. I mean, you're talking about the podium and not podium. So those, those were elite athletes that the Cox group recruited for that study. So, you know, again, context, it's so important when you start talking about findings and methodology and, and whether something works or doesn't work. Do you think on the, <clears throat> what are your thoughts about the monoester versus like the butane diol version? Because, and this is public knowledge and, and conflict of interest. I may be working very soon or probably will be by the time this comes out with one of the, the ketone companies who has a different ester. So for People make their own decisions based on that, whatever. Thoughts on the monoester versus the butane diol version? Because I know HVMN has switched over for reasons we don't have to get into, but mm-hmm. they're kind of pushing the butane diol version. You've got the monoester. You've got kind of these different esters that are coming out now. I'm just kind of curious on what your general thoughts are. Because yeah, I think for a- consumers, it's super confusing. Right, because you hear ester, and I use the the monoester early on from HVMN, and it tastes horrific. Yeah, like right. it tastes pretty bad. <laughs> yes, it does. And it's quite different from the butane diol version too. So, right, you know, it's a great question. I always stick go back to the mentors that I have and look at what they've done, and I'm looking at potentially doing some more. I've been put in contact with HVMN and and potentially going to do some work with them in the next year or so. I haven't seen enough data to really have an opinion yet on if you should go one one way or the other. I think we still need a lot of data on the different types of esters. Dom was talking about a triester that 
it was in his fridge and I haven't even seen any data on a triester. So I'm like, you know, there's just all types of stuff that are all types of potential data and research that's underway that we don't know anything about. And so right now with so the only, what I can say is, and it's not even ester related is that the ketone salts, which are much more available to the public and cheaper, those don't really seem to have much of an effect other than giving you a GI distress. And so I usually turn people away from that. It's very hard with the ketone salts to get beta hydroxybutyrate levels above. Right now, there's a theoretical threshold of about 1.5 or higher, maybe even 2.0 millimoles of BHB and yeah. concentration to have an effect. And we think that might be a at for physical performance, just based on what studies are out there that have found an effect, it, it's always been above 1.5 to 2.0. In cognition, we got our girls up, our females up above 2.0 and found some cognitive effects. But hmm. when you look at the ketone salts, they're not touching that. So it's going to be within the realm of the esters. But in terms of an opinion on the different types, I'm just there's again for me it's i don't really have an opinion just yet i I think there's still a lot of more a lot more research to be done on that on that area before i can have much of an opinion there yeah i always ask this question too any thoughts about the the taste of them during the study i did a it wasn't published but some stuff with the Kerrig institute where we had three groups we had the ketone ester and we were using the old mono ester from hvmn at the time fasted and then a high carbohydrate day so they would come Mm -hmm. in do a 2k on the rower under those different conditions and it was interesting because again anecdotal not published data but one or two people hit a pr on the fasted no one hit a pr on the ketone group however we did a stroop test and we tried to do just some really basic cognition type stuff and just rpe a fair amount of people reported that they felt better and some of the stroop scores and some of the cognition stuff was a little bit better. Mm. And then most people hit PR on the higher carbohydrate day. And we did that over a couple of different groups, but even just getting them to take the the monoester was yeah. was quite interesting because the the faces that they made of like, what did you just make me do were very yeah. interesting. <laughs> we I mean it is extremely bitter. So when we were trying, we I pilot tested the taste along with some others, trying to figure out for the placebo, trying yeah. to figure out a, an appropriate placebo. And so it is very bitter, very acidic. I've heard people call it jet fuel. I don't know what jet fuel tastes like. I just know <laughs> that the keto monoester is, man, it, it is very hard to get down. With that said, there we have been able to figure out placebos that mimic make it to enough of a degree that when we do an exit interview with our subjects and say, which treatment did you get? Um, more than half will usually either say they don't know or they guess wrong. And so the oh, way we've been that's pretty do, good. You know, the way we've been able to do that is the biggest one is there's a, it's called true bitter blocker that you can add to the ketone monoester. And I can't, cannot remember the company it's they're based out of pennsylvania yeah. is it a masking um, agent for like, yep, flavor houses use that, yeah. that's exactly it and we've been able to figure out that nice little balance there add a little arrow root to the placebo give it kind hmm. of a it, it if you do too much it's way too thick but if you ju- do just enough the correct amount it gives it kind of this uh, the same mouthfeel and hmm. it, it's enough <clears throat> of a match between the two that are m- 
uh, like in this past study we did for the spring, only four of the subjects correctly guessed the treatment. So that's still Damn, four out that's of good. The, we did 12 total, but yeah, so you're talking though. about a third. Yeah, but it is tough, you know, for those who've never done it or tasted it. It is it is very, very, very harsh supplement to, uh, to ingest. Yeah, I'll have to look to see what I know Martin Gabalia just published a study on the ketone monoester and I mm-hmm. read it the other day again and I can't remember what they used for a placebo on it but yeah that is one of the downsides of doing those those kind of studies for sure yeah oh very cool so what's up next for the kind of the ketone area are you still kind of looking more at cognition kind of after doing some type of physical tasks I'm guessing yeah I think again all right. So we know, yes, it's with cognition and knowing that the ketone monoester is so expensive. It just is. It's, it's, it's very costly. If someone was to really incorporate it into their typical training routine. So one thing I want to check it out against and compare the two is against caffeine. Caffeine's very cheap. It's also better. Yeah. So I think making, yep. being able to match the two in terms of taste won't be too hard. And looking at this very cheap, well-established ergogenic aid, even for the cognitive side, well-established yeah. among a lot of military studies and compare that to the ketone monoester. I think that's where the lab, in terms of the ketone work we're doing, that's where the lab's going to head. Again, that's where I was talking with HVMN about some research down the road. I think that's what we're going to look at. And then again, just going back to an earlier question, you said, what else the lab had, was looking at? We're also involved heavily. I've got doc students on our astaxanthin. And then we're looking big time at some confounding slash variables slash influences on female substrate oxidation rate. So those are kind of like the three big metabolic flexibility in a sense, if you want to call it that. I, I think like yourself, I've expanded that thought a bit beyond just metabolic flexibility. There's, there's so many other things founder confounders that come in and and impact that but yeah those are like the three directions of the lab right now interestingly they all come back to mitochondrial health which is really at the focus if you said hey hunter what is the primary research like if you had to sum up your research what would it be i would say i'm primarily interested in practical interventions whether it be exercise nutrition mitigating stress improving sleep whatever it might be and I'm interested in these practical interventions and, and how they might improve medic, mitochondrial efficiency, mitochondrial health. And a, because our lab is so applied, yes, we can do a lot of different blood analysis, but I want to, again, to make it practical, I'm interested in just, just easy things. It might be just cardiorespiratory measures or cardiometabolic measures like blood pressure and body fat. But substrate oxidation rates is a big part of that as well. Just simply looking at, hey, how well do you burn fat and carbohydrate at different intensities. So that kind of summarizes what our lab is trying to accomplish, hopefully before I take the old dirt nap. We'll see. Oh, that's great. And obviously we initially connected on, you're in the Flex Diet Cert with the interview we did back in yes, the day sir. about metabolic yeah, flexibility it. and stuff too. So yeah. yeah, give me your, I'm super curious now, you said expanded thoughts on metabolic flexibility. So give me your expanded thoughts. I'm super curious. Yeah, I used to think of metabolic flexibility just as, and it still sticks to the name, which is how well your ability to oxidize either this substrate or this substrate, pending what the mitochondria or what you're exposed to, whether it be exercise or stressors, whatever it might be. 
And then that's kind of where it stopped for me at the time as a doc student. And now later on looking at metabolic flexibility, first off, the biggest question is what, how do you quantify metabolic flexibility? What is, that's like the, that was being posed to me early on, not directly, but the way the questions I I was getting asked and I came to this thought myself, which was what is considered metabolically inflexible? So if we go to the extremes, you could look at, you could argue insulin resistance, type two diabetes. You could go to the other extreme though, and people will mention maybe like ketogenic diet as a way to become metabolically flexible. You can also make yourself metabolically inflexible, I would argue, if you follow that chronically, because then you essentially impair, mitigate the glycolytic system. And we've seen that. We've seen reductions in pyruvate dehydrogenase and that whole complex. So that's right. So you can also become metabolically inflexible, this other extreme. And that, so then you start trying to cut, if it's a spectrum, you start coming on in into the spectrum and saying, okay, so where exactly does metabolic inflexibility happen? Because it's hard to talk about metabolic flexibility if you don't have a definition that you can quantify. And yep. so that's really where my brain, when I mean expanded, that's where I'm at now, which is, and it's not just looking at how well the mitochondria or the cell itself handles substrate oxidation it being as a result of exercise because that's where a lot of the early research was. Now it's expanded for me looking at all the different types of stressors. So psychological stress, physical stress, looking at sleep. If in a sense, sleep can be a stressor. Someone could argue sleep could be a stressor. You're going, if you're getting enough of it, I know it's a restorative period, but eight to 10 hours in a fasting state, you definitely can see transcriptional factors and enzymes and proteins like NPK upregulated. NPK is a stressor, a stress protein that in caloric deficits will be upregulated. So we can see some upregulation NPK. So anyways, just environmental stressors, and you can start combining those and get what are called dual stressors, like physical and cognitive stress, and then looking at how those impact metabolic flexibility. And anyways, it's just, it's it went from me thinking of metabolic flexibility and just how exercise impacts it to now it's okay we really need a working quantifiable definition for it and there are many more factors that impact it other than just exercise and again that's just me just growing up a lot when we had talked years ago that's where I was a doc student and I'm getting older and hopefully learning a little more every year. And I'm, I've got great mentors that that help me see things that I wasn't seeing at the time. Yeah. And I don't know how if it's changed for you since we've last talked to you, because that's how one of the ways we connected was over Facebook talking about yeah. metabolic flexibility. <laughs> Has it changed for you in terms of your thoughts on it? I think so. I... God, I was looking at this the other day. I'm like, oh my God, I started looking at this 16 years ago, I think now when I started my PhD. Yeah. And at the time I was like, metabolic what? I like same. That was my first question that you had too. Is, wasn't that just how normal humans work? Yeah. It, it, show me the metabolically inflexible people and then I might care because it means it can be changed. And hmm. yeah, so happens. So lots of disease processes do that. And then the definition was the thing I was <clears throat> trying to finish my PhD dissertation on was fine scale variability across different physiologic systems from heart rate to RER. So our hypothesis was if we baseline someone, we get them into the lab, we do their VO2 max, we baseline them to a max amount of work, put them on a steady state treadmill, 
we have a breath by breath metabolic heart looking at RER. So we're looking at what percentage of fuel that they're using. Like mm -hmm. most of the textbooks at that point, even now would say, it should be 0 0.75, 0 0.75. But if you've done enough metabolic tests, that's a 20 minute test. You get bored and you just start staring and you feel like you're in the matrix looking at all these numbers <laughs> going across the screen. And you'll see like RER starts moving around 0 0.78, 0 0.76, 0 0.74, 0 0.73, 0 0.75. And then the next person, you'll see 0 0.75, 0 0.76, 0 0.75, 0 0.75, yep. like it doesn't move much at all. Because some people would argue like, that's just the machine, it's the variability in the system, and there is some of that. So our argument was that fine scale variability change in RER under a constant low intensity exercise is a marker of metabolic flexibility. And that might be a non-invasive way without pulling bloods, without doing anything else, to try to get at who's more metabolically flexible than somebody else. So long story short, we did that. We published it. We only did a basically a gauge R&R &R on it, showing that it is repeatable. And my thought is, I'm sure maybe you were similar once you graduate, get your PhD, you're like, yes, I'm done. I'm out. Woohoo! Yeah. And you just assume people will read your research and someone will go out and test it, right? So yeah. I assumed someone will read this and go, hey, that's ingenious. Let's see does it actually show that it is, it's a stable measurement? Does it actually show it's metabolically flexible or not? Uh, no one's ever done that. Every time I present the idea to people, they're just like, nah. And I'm like, man, I'm not going back to school to look at this again. I'm out. You need someone else to do it. Yeah. But in terms of expanded definition, lately, probably starting maybe eight years ago, similar to you, I was like, okay, so if this works for metabolism, what about if we scale up as like a human organism? What mm -hmm. does that look like? And so the concept I came up with is physiologic flexibility. How well can you change depending upon different stimulus? And then the next question for me was, <clears throat> okay, great. What systems am I even going to bother looking at? There's bazillions of systems in the human body. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, if you're survival-based, what systems does your body 100% have to hold within a fine range? So I came up with temperature, pH, fuels, and then CO2. You could get into some molecular ones and some other stuff beyond that. But my argument then is, okay, if your body has to hold those constant, can we build up more physiologic headroom or buffer space within each one? Because we know all those have the ability to be adaptation, whether it's heat acclimation, you can get used to cold, whatever. And so I just call that physiologic flexibility. And so I have a certification that goes through each four of those areas of how can you increase the physiologic overhead in those. My mm -hmm. argument is that once you have your basics covered, like sleep, exercise, nutrition, this would be a framework then to look at how can you become a more resilient organism? Yep. How can you be dropped into other environments and still perform well at that point? There's a lot of just based off that, and I've checked that website out and obviously listened to you talk about this on some of your other podcasts, but so many factors play into what you're talking about, like the idea of hormesis, some stress is yeah. good and too much is bad and not enough is also potentially bad as well. And getting into allostasis and allostatic load, and these are concepts that people even in the exercise science generally haven't heard of thought about and yeah what you're talking about summarizes all of that it's also interestingly where a lot of the asses anthem research that we've done is with that mindset what you're talking about these different concepts in mind yes yeah, fascinating yeah 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 and <clears throat> last part of that is that 
I like the word adaptive homeostasis better than hormesis, which again mm-hmm. is getting down and like really splitting hairs. Yeah. Because the definition of hormesis would imply that there has to be some cell death in order to trigger that process. Mm-hmm. But as we know, you can do things to the body without actually having to damage the cells and sure. they can still get a positive adaptation, which would be more adaptive homeostasis. Yep. Again, that gets into the research and Calvin Davies is the main guy who goes with that theory. So yeah, but again, it's always fascinating to me how the adaptability of the human organism almost never gets lost. But I worked for a cardiac medical device company for many years and we'd have patients that would be in class three heart failure with their lungs half full of fluid and the heart's like the size of a basketball, Mm -hmm. but it's still in that phase, still trying to adapt and do the best that it can. And in a couple of cases where we put in devices to resynchronize the actual pacing of the heart, the beating, the heart actually re-remodeled back down to a smaller size in oh, wow. many of the cases, which to me was just fascinating yeah. because a lot of the EPs, electrophysiologists, cardiologists I talked to, they're like, yeah, they might do better, but their heart's not going to change in size. And at some point, if you have enough damage, it won't. Mm-hmm. But if you can get at it right before you start having fibrosis and a bunch of damage, it's crazy to me with the right stimulus, how much adaptation you can still get out of the human body, even yeah. in a worst case scenario. For sure. I think maybe like yourself, that's a, that case, maybe not that extreme, but is what attracted me to XFIS as an undergraduate yeah, totally. student is the, just the, how amazing the human body is. Someone could look at someone who's extremely obese and insulin resistant type two diabetic and maybe not think twice about it. And I look at that and think, man, even though, and they might smoke and everything else and look at that body and think it still functions. It still has all these different processes that allow it to function and adapt and potentially even reverse itself uh, to the other side of the spectrum, if done correctly. So physiology, it's fascinating. I just love it. Yeah, I, similar. I'm always amazed at the range. If mm-hmm. I put sugar in the gas tank in my car, I'm not going to make it around the block. But you could live <laughs> on 7-Eleven Slurpees for several months and yep. still be upright. Yep. You're not going to be the best functioning human on the planet. Or the other end of the spectrum where we talked about that 2% difference in elite athletes, like mm-hmm. these minuscule changes make big differences on that end too. Just yep. the range of it, or I just coined a term I call human dynamic range is just mm, fascinating. That's a good term. Yeah. Yeah. I like making up I terms now. Like I figured it. screw it. Yeah, I'll just yeah. make up my own terms and <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, keep doing it. I love yeah. it. I'm going to have to make a list of them. I'll credit yeah, yeah. you when I use them. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about astaxanthine. I started yeah. following some of that research. Oh man, maybe it was a 10 or 10 plus years ago, I saw a talk, I can't remember the Japanese fellow mm-hmm. at ISSN talking about astaxanthine related to eye fatigue. Oh, yeah. And I was like, what? this doesn't make any sense. And his the thought process was the eyes, the muscles of the eyes produce a lot of reactive oxygen species because yep. of how much work they're doing all the time. And that astaxanthine can help quench some of these free radicals. And so I started looking at it and I found a bunch of really early rat or mouse data showing upregulations in fatty acid use. So at the time, I was really looking at supplements for how can we upregulate the use of fat for fuel related to metabolic flexibility, which everyone's looking for better body composition, all that stuff forever. But I was like, can you do it via something that's not a stimulant? 
or a massive uncoupling agent like DMP, which has a side effect of like death. That's probably yeah. not so good. <laughs> probably not, yeah. <laughs> and not reversible. Yeah. Um, and there's some very interesting studies on rats. I think it was interaction of a CPT1 enzyme, which yep. is basically allowing more fat to flow through the mitochondria. And so I kept following that and following it. And I've tried a bunch of experiments with it. And then they had some human studies that came out that were like, eh, not as impressive. And then I was kind of yeah. like, meh. And then I talked to Dr. Karen at ISSN yep. last Brilliant. year again. And she was telling me about all the new work they've been doing and some of the update of the studies. And I was like, oh, because it was one of those things where the research just kept accumulating, right? So you've been around long enough that you'll see people get super excited about a thing and there's a whole bunch of research and then it just yeah. drops off a cliff and no one ever looks at it again. Where the research on this kept going up and up and there's yeah a lot more interesting things that you see now with it. Yeah. Yeah. We, and we can definitely go down whatever rabbit holes you want. For those who are listening, just to talk about what is Astaxanthin. Yeah. What is it? We should back up there. <laughs> yeah. Because a lot of people, when I talk to them about Astaxanthin, they're like, they don't Astaxanthin. know how to pronounce it. Yeah. And they've never heard of it. And I was at a conference and someone didn't know how to say it. And so they called it Astax. <laughs> and they kept referring to it as then. I was like, no, that, that is, is not, yeah, that's not a good shortened version. Yeah. Let's come up with something else. Yeah. So taking a step back, let's get a global view. There are probably 10,000 plus phytochemicals that exist uh, that we're aware of. Phytochemicals being plant chemicals. Uh, and most of these have some type of antioxidant properties. And it's very tough to talk about antioxidants without talking about oxidative stress or oxidative eustress and free radicals. And we can talk about that and give a quick overview of those. But these antioxidants within that is a subclass of carotenoids. And we think there's probably give or take a thousand different types of carotenoids. And within that subclass, uh, for those who are unaware of carotenoids, they're different from other antioxidants. They're hydroxyl containing, which is oxygen and hydrogen. A lot of times they are converted into vitamin A, but they are pigments that give fruits and vegetables their color. So yellow, orange, red, anything, mangoes, sweet potatoes, carrots, or tomatoes, anything that has those colors, those are the carotenoid families that are allowing them to have that color. But they are very powerful in terms of being able to prevent oxidation Astaxanthin, almost I couldn't say it, astaxanthin is <laughs> unique in that it is a carotenoid, but it's not found in plants and fruits and vegetables. It's actually found in crustaceans like lobster and crab. It's found in soil. It is found in microalgae and yeast, and it's also found in salmon. And I've heard people make the argument eat enough crab and lobster and always have to stop them and tell them if you've ever seen a lobster or a crab on the beach or in a tank, if you're going to eat one, they're not red. They turn red when you cook them. It turns out that most antioxidants, phytochemicals, carotenoids, they're bound by proteins and those proteins only release them when they're heated up. So you find a lot of astaxanthin in the shell of crabs and lobsters. And what happens to a lobster when you cook it? It goes from gray to red. Why is that the heat degraded that protein that was binding astaxanthin? And then that allows astaxanthin to express itself. But even still, you don't eat the shell. So really the main place that you're going to get it, if you are going to get it naturally, not talking dietary supplementation, is going to be from salmon. 
Now, there's two different types. Of, there's all types of salmon, but there's farmed and wild. Farmed salmon is actually has a gray muscle. And because people aren't attracted to eat gray salmon, they're fed pellets that have synthetic astaxanthin in it. Now, astaxanthin comes in several, in three different stereoisomers. It comes in the 3R3R3S and then 3S3S. And for those listening, you can start really getting down the chemistry rabbit hole on this, but, and we don't have to go there, but I usually, when I explain it to my students, I'm like, you have a left and right hand. It's the same thing. It could be like two left hands, two right hands, or a left and right hand. It, the stereoisomers are just saying the configuration of the chemical either looks the same or it's been flipped, whatever it might be. Yeah. I call them like, there's like a mirror image of each other. Yeah, exactly. If you write them out on paper, they look the same, but if you yep. hold it up to a mirror, you've got two, two different images now. That's exactly right. And the synthetic form is actually the 3R3S, generally the 3R3S. And farm salmon have a very, have a much higher astaxanthin content than wild salmon because hmm. they are fed this concentration, concentrated form. However, it's the synthetic astaxanthin, which is hmm. not nearly <clears throat> as powerful as natural astaxanthin. So the natural astaxanthin 3S3S is what you find in wild salmon of all types. And really came to the forefront of research. It was some fishermen had essentially come up to a researcher, and I do not remember his last name, but they were trying to figure out a way to have healthier salmon, healthier fish. And so he recommended they start feeding them astaxanthin. And for those who don't know, you probably know what a salmon is, but you may not know its life cycle. And at the end of their life cycle, they travel over 900 miles. They yeah, travel so over 7,000 feet of elevation. And when you talk about, the, and they don't eat the whole time that they do this. They, they don't, don't eat. Interesting. They don't eat. So they are the ultimate endurance athlete. To yeah. They're one of the main animals you can study for oxidative stress and reactive oxygen species production. And what they were finding in these salmon is that they are somehow able to preserve their ability to oxidize fat and maintain this healthy muscle tissue, even after not eating and having traveled all this way. And they were able to find out that it was astaxanthin that protects the muscle, hmm. protects their ability to burn fat, utilize fat. And to go back to what you were saying, you were talking about the, the mice data. We know one of the things that happens now, you can see this in an obese population, or you can see it just in an athlete that is exercising for a, a long period of time, but the mitochondria, so I'll take another step back and talk about oxidative stress and free radical production. So there are several places that you produce free radicals. And what is a free radical? It's just a molecule with an unpaired electron. It can get, it can be more than that, but for the sake of this talk, we'll just stay there. And it's produced in several sites. We know it's produced in the mitochondria. There's some debate right now as to if that's the primary site during exercise or not. It's produced mm. outside the mitochondria and the cytoplasm. It's produced by endothelial cells. And we can talk about that as well because there's some cool stuff there from astaxanthin. But it's produced in all these different areas. When it's when free radicals, it, they all originate from something known as superoxide and or singlet oxygen. Singlet oxygen is literally just oxygen that's missing an electron. And one of the things that happens is when it's produced in the mitochondria, it is able to immediately escape the mitochondria and start reacting with DNA, mitochondrial DNA and changing the form of mitochondria. It's able to interact with lipid membranes and proteins and degrade these things, which is not a good thing. 
So anyways, one of the other proteins that can interact with is carnitine acetyl transferase 1. So the carnitine system, and for those who are unaware, your mitochondria, the way they're able to oxidize different types of fats is they have a transportation system, the CAT system, carnitine system that will take these fatty acids and bring them inside to be used as a fuel. But these free radicals, when they're created, anytime metabolic rate is increased, these free radicals will attack that CAT system, that carnitine system. And what we end up seeing is we see a reduction in someone's ability to burn fat. And again, this can happen in someone who's at rest if they're really obese or overweight due to ceramides and DAGs and all these uh, and disruptions to the insulin receptor substrate. But in a, even a healthy person, if metabolic rate and metabolism is high enough, this can also happen to you as well. And so astaxanthin has a unique ability due to its structure, which is different than the other carotenoids. It has polar ends. It's, it, if you can picture a chain and at the end of both sides of the chain are two balls and it is the perfect size and length that it's able to embed itself into any bipolar or bilipid membrane. So think of like your mitochondria. Your mitochondria has two membranes, an outer and an inner. And astaxanthin is able to take its ends and put them in the membrane. And then it has this chain that connects the two ends that actually sits in, the, in between those membranes. And it can do that in cell membranes. It can cross the blood retina barrier. You were talking about the yeah. ciliary <clears throat> muscles, which can control contraction and lengthening of the muscle or the eye muscle. It can cross the blood brain barrier and it increases its concentration and content in the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex. And so we've talked about that. And so it's able to scavenge these free radicals outside of the membrane, inside the membrane, and on the inner membrane. And so usually if you take vitamin C, it's water soluble. It can only scavenge in the aqueous or cytoplasm uh, section. If you take vitamin E, it's lipid soluble. So it's going to scavenge within the actual lipid area of the membrane. But astaxanthin is able to do it all, and it's got a much, it's much more powerful than these other beta these other carotenoids. One of the problems with the carotenoids is that if taken in too high of a dose, they can actually go from antioxidants to prooxidants, which is an issue. And astaxanthin, we've not seen any negative effects from supplementation with astaxanthin. It doesn't appear to become a prooxidant even in high doses. And its ability to quench singlet oxygen, its ability to take on these high electrons, these high energy electrons, and mitigate free radical production is really impressive. And there's research that's come out in 2023, because one of the big things from the athletic community is whether or not taking antioxidants actually impairs exercise training adaptations. And we're not seeing that with astaxanthin. In fact, again, some of the 2023 data has demonstrated that its ability to upregulate mitochondrial antioxidants, glutathione, catalase, superoxide, dismutase, is doing this through a transcription factor known as NRF2. We could talk about that as well. But it's not mitigating the training adaptations. There was a cool study that came out with HIT in astaxanthin versus no astaxanthin and finding a lot of cool adaptations in the HIT, HIT group with astaxanthin, whereas the HIT-only group experienced, because it was so frequent, they actually went backwards, and this was a mouse model, but they went backwards due to excessive oxidative stress, and that was not experienced in the group with astaxanthin. So it's just, 
it's a really a phenomenal antioxidant. The more I study dietary supplements, the more I, the less I take. I, there's only yeah. a couple I take: <laughs> whey protein, creatine, vitamin D3, and I've added astaxanthin based on what I've read and the research that we're doing. I've added astaxanthin six milligrams a day to my regular stack, and that's it. So it's Would interesting you put fish how that oil plays in there out. Too? Yep. So there's a fish oil. Oh, man, I am a proponent of fish oil. There's an argument as to whether it should be fish oil or krill oil. And people right. say, that's my next question. Yep. So if you look at the fatty acids that we're primarily focused on between krill oil and fish oil, it's DHA, docosahexanoic acid, and EPA, icosapentanoic acid. A lot of benefits to EPA and DHA. Uh, in fish oil, it comes in the triglyceride form. And in krill oil, it comes in the phospholipid form. And for those listening, it's like, what is he talking about? <laughs> Just understand the phospholipid form found in krill oil. It's able to penetrate it. We'll say it's more bioavailable to the cell. Interestingly, there's research coming out now that shows that astaxanthin, when paired with fish oil, specifically fish oil, it seems to enhance the effects specifically for cognitive function. And that's really interesting. Now, the mechanisms are not known yet on that. Those have not been fleshed out. We just know right now that astaxanthin and EPA and DHA when taken together, which makes sense because that's what you would find in natural salmon muscle. But when taken together, there's a synergistic effect that's happening there. And there's research coming out that's showing that the mechanisms are not understood there's an argument of, okay, if if krill oil is more bioavailable in terms of the fatty acids that are in there and krill oil, it's red, it has astaxanthin in it, shouldn't we take that? And I always tell people, krill oil is made up of less than 1% astaxanthin. Oh, yes, it is in there, but it's in such a small amount. I don't know if it's actually meaningful. So yeah, I think if going back to your original question, do what I recommend fish oil, I think context dependent for sure, especially as we age and we know the data coming out on anabolic resistance and fish oil potentially being able to reverse that yeah. or enhance our ability, the anabolic signaling pathways, protein kinase B and mTOR. I definitely think that it's there. I'm not taking it yet, but when I talk to people, especially over 35, it's one of the main, or if they're suffering with any kind of dyslipidemia or cardiovascular disease markers or elevated inflammation, fish oil is one of the first things we get to talking about. Yeah. And that's <clears throat> for people really wishing to push the envelope. My recommendation for many years was, hey, curl oil, I agree the bioavailability is better, but if you look at the price and you look at the amount yeah. that you would end up with at the end, it becomes a little bit cost prohibitive, I think, especially when I've run blood spot tests on people and like their EPA DHA is in like the absolute crapper. They're yep. just like so low. <laughs> their omega-6 is so high. Yeah, I'm like, if you really want to push the envelope, take a bunch of fish oil and then just take astaxanthin separate yep. was my go-to. Yep. And that's what I recommend as well. Honestly, the promising data with astaxanthin to, to put it in perspective, we in general, recommend individuals that study this, depending on the benefits that you're looking for, because it does change a little bit based on the data right now, if it's cognitive, if it's for eye health, skin health, or performance, it's going to range somewhere between four and 12 milligrams a day. And so again, I take six milligrams, I get that middle, middle mark, but in order for you to get so for one milligram of astaxanthin, if the main food source is going to be salmon, 
you have to eat somewhere, depending on the type of salmon, somewhere between six to 12 ounce filet to get one milligram, which is a lot of fish to get one milligram of astaxanthin. So if we're saying you need to take six milligrams, you're getting up to a really a lot of salmon every single day. So yeah, just from a practical standpoint, it makes sense to just take it as a dietary supplement. The biggest thing is making sure you're getting it from someone who's sourcing it from yeast or microalgae where the environment can be controlled. One of the ways that algae, going back to the hormetic theory, algae, it's green, but when it's stressed, it actually will, it will synthesize astaxanthin and it turns red. It's again, to protect itself from changes in pH, changes in temperature and acidity. So individuals that understand this, like Asteril and Dr. Hecht, and that's part of her company that she works with as a scientific affairs manager there, and she's brilliant. They're able to control for that. Whereas most 95% of dietary supplements that are producing astaxanthin is the synthetic form. And we go back to the synthetic form. It's not nearly as powerful as the natural source that you can get from, again, microalgae, salmon. But yeah, definitely supplementing with it makes the most sense. It'd be very tough to get it from the diet if you were to eat that every day. And I would assume sockeye salmon, because they're more red color, would have more astaxanthin in it, correct? Yeah, yeah <clears throat> brilliant. A ab absolutely. It, it has, based on what I understand, it has the highest concentration of astaxanthin, of natural astaxanthin. But it's still, you still have to, would have to eat quite a bit of yeah, it. Yeah, you still eat day. a ton of it. Yeah. Kind of like creatine. Yeah, that's right. Like, yeah. Yeah, you can get it from meat, but you're talking like multiple pounds per day yeah. to get a couple grams. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a great comparison there. And I think astaxanthin, because it's incorporated into the cellular membrane, if you're looking for kind of a maximal effect, like creatine, you would need a loading phase of, would you say, two, four-ish weeks maybe or longer for it to accumulate into the body? Yeah, great question. The data on, so that's data that we need still in terms of, do you need a loading dose? And how long does it take to saturate the actual right. cell itself? Because the data that we do have, we know there's acute data where people have ingested 40 milligrams up to hundred milligrams, no toxicity effects. But again, we're not really sure if you set, if you take 40 milligrams of astaxanthin within about eight hours, it, we see that it has, it's, we see that in the blood from the red blood cell, but that doesn't mean what you find in your blood or plasma doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on in the cell. Yeah. So we don't have the data as of right now to say you should or should not load it to get the mitochondria and cell membrane fully saturated. But we do know based on the data that's out there, if you take anywhere from six to 12 milligrams a day, you can definitely start to see cognitive effects, skin health effects, metabolic and performance effects within four weeks. So there's clearly within about a four week time frame of just taking it and that's no loading. I would not consider six to 12 milligrams a day a loading phase. And again, about that four week time frame, I can definitely start to see effects there. Interesting. What are your thoughts on, so one of the things I do before I go on a kiteboard trip is one of the things I've added within the past <clears throat> probably three years is actual astaxanthin. And mm -hmm. from talking to Dr. Karen last year, and again, this year, I've upped my dose. I started initially at three grams, then I went to six, then I went to three nine. Milligrams. Yeah. 
Yeah, three milligrams. Yeah. Now I might try the higher end, maybe 10 or 12. Yeah. And my thought process is that there may be some protection for UV potentially related oh, yeah. to the skin because I'm very fair skin. Obviously, I still wear sunblock. I wear full clothes when I'm outside, but I'm kiteboarding down south, like staring at the mm-hmm. sun for five hours at a shot. And then also, I haven't seen any direct date on this, but any thoughts on potentially mitigating concussion with potential stabilization of the blood-brain barrier or yeah. some of the neuro aspects? Again, my thought being that I don't know what the potential upside is, but I know the downside. There's not much of a downside other than cost. Yeah. And if I'm going to do something where I'm going to try to jump 20 feet in the air, there's yeah. some bad shit that could go yeah, wrong, that's right? right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I assume there's no, I'm not familiar with kiteboard. I have an idea, but I'm assuming there's nothing to catch you if you land hard. Yeah, it's a good and bad. Obviously, you're using the kite. And if you ride and you throw the kite directly above you real fast, pull the bar in, it'll literally yank you straight up off the water. So yeah. I have this little device that measures it. And I'll go from on the surface to <laughs> 15 feet, sometimes in a second and a half. It feels like the hand of God came down and just threw yeah. you in the air. You're the great part man. is if you, yeah, the great part is if you do it right, you can move the kite and you can land super soft. But if you screw something up or you start moving the kite fast and it's out mm-hmm. in front, you can just, but get dropped like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> yeah. Let me hit the skin side yeah. and then we'll talk about the cog- cognitive side real quick. So you're absolutely right. When you look at the data on astaxanthin and skin health, they're, there's enough data there now that cosmetic products are adding it to some. Blog. Yeah, I've seen that. It is very impressive. And those are the data that's out there is all at the higher dose. It's been around 10 milligrams a day that those subjects, human subjects have been taken. There is some mice data as well, where they, as bad as it is, they would burn the mice. And there was a group of placebo, a group of astaxanthin, and the group that got astaxanthin the burn recovered quicker. And I guess I'll take a step back and explain. One of the things that happens when you're exposed to UV radiation is that radiation can actually come into water, knock a hydro, and your skin is full of water. Obviously, hydration is a big part of that. But UV radiation can knock a hydrogen off. And what you're left with is a hydroxyl radical. For those who are unaware, hydroxyl radical is a free radical, and it is the most damaging free radical that you produce. Not good. Those hydroxyl radicals are then your lipid membranes in the skin and the dermis, specifically these polyunsaturated fats, are highly susceptible to oxidation by those hydroxyl radicals. And we know one of the reasons that you age in terms of wrinkles from an appearance standpoint is those hydroxyl radicals have a real nice ability to go in and disrupt those polyunsaturated fats that maintain the integrity of the skin. UV radiation also activates something known as matrix metalloproteases. Probably best to think of those as like little scissor proteins. And what they do is they go in and they just literally just start breaking collagen down. And so there was a group, so I think it was 10, 10 milligrams a day for 16 weeks. And then a group that got placebo or astaxanthin and the group that got astaxanthin had their less wrinkles. And this was done by a dermatologist that looked at them and assessed them pre and post, but they had less wrinkles. The skin was more, we'll say, rigid in terms of its ability to look tight. And we know that one of the things astaxanthin does as well is it increases what are called fibroblasts in the skin, which helps rebuild broken down skin. 
and that it also increases collagen synthesis. And so mm. in an earlier study I had talked, had mentioned about the mice being burned, the mice that had received these skin burns, the group that got astaxanthin had, not only did they recover faster from the skin burns, but there was less scarring afterwards as well. And so when they ended up what they call sacrificing the mice, going back and looking at them, there was a lot, there was significantly greater collagen in that skin compared to the placebo group. And so we know that astaxanthin has quite a role in terms of skin protection. But again, as you mentioned, it is at the higher dose. And then from a concussion standpoint, astaxanthin is one of the only nutrients that we're aware of that can cross a blood brain barrier. You've got ketones, you've obviously lactate, glucose, a couple others, but astaxanthin can cross that blood brain barrier. And so we know it saturates the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. Two reasons that's important. The hippocampus, because the hippocampus is highly susceptible. Again, the brain is filled with polyunsaturated fats. Talking about oxidation, you start getting in free radicals and inflammation, and you start to go down the rabbit hole of dementia, specifically the mitochondria within the brain. One thing that happens to them, so mitochondria are very dynamic. Obviously, you know this. They're able to grow if they're healthy and get really big. They're able to splice off aspects of them if they're dysfunctional. And But when they become dysfunctional, they actually will turn into what are called donut mitochondria. And so they mm -hmm. actually form, they look just like a donut. That's not good. And in fact, in the hippocampus, you can see that taking place when someone is developing Parkinson's or dementia, mm -hmm. or different types of dementia, but Parkinson's and MS. And astaxanthin has a, an ability to go in there and stabilize those mitochondria and prevent reactive oxygen species, mitigate inflammation, and keep aspects of the hippocampus healthy, keep the prefrontal cortex healthy. And the prefrontal cortex plays a significant role in your ability to coordinate movement, choose movements, and conduct any kind of, I would say, gross motor skills. And so from the concussion standpoint, I'm not aware of much data on that. But you were asking, what were my thoughts on it? It would make sense to me that you would have, I, in my head, I would have probably have a couple of things on hand. I would have astaxanthin I would have taken ahead of time just because we know it can cross a blood-brain barrier. One of the things that happens when you are concussed is that blood-brain barrier breaks down. Its ability to oxidize certain nutrients also goes down. And there's significant inflammation that all of a sudden takes place within those cells so astaxanthin, if it's already there and saturated, those mitochondria specifically would be able to mitigate that inflammation process. But I would also have some type of probably ketone on me, exogenous ketone that I could take right afterwards. A lot of people, it, I think the NFL is a great example of this, of where they'll give individuals Gatorade after a concussion. And the problem now that we know is that all of that glucose most of it doesn't cross that blood-brain barrier. And what does across is probably increasing inflammation. And so beta-hydroxybutyrate would have an opportunity there to help mitigate that inflammation from a concussion. And there is some data to demonstrate that. So I think that would probably, if I was a kiteboard or going 20 feet in the air, I think that's that would be my stack for that. Oh, that's cool. That's <clears throat> pretty much what I do. The only one that I've added is I'll bump my dose of creatine up to mm, 20 yep, grams a day too. Some from Dr. Eric Ralston. We've had him on the podcast. Yep. And again, human studies are very hard to determine what, how much creatine will saturate the brain. You've got to look at MRS and some types of things because animals are much easier to study invasively for those types of things. 
I do actually use a higher dose of CBD. There's some interesting data that it might be neuroprotective. And there's a rat study or mouse study where they disrupted the blood-brain barrier. And the group that had CBD, the blood-brain barrier stayed intact longer. But my thought being, yeah, not much of a downside there. Maybe yeah. there's some protection. Because once, as you said, that blood-brain barrier opens up, man, you're in such a world of hurt now because you've got all this stuff that was normally kept out yep. coming into a brain that's already got high levels of inflammation, already yep. has an energy crisis because glucose metabolism gets knocked offline. Yep. And now you've got even more inflammation and it's just it's a mess. And you're, you're giving context to the listener, which I think is really important because one of the things that you're saying, and I, I would want to reiterate is you're talking about supplements that either they only either have an upside or at least no detriment. And that's creatine. There's really no detriment, no detriment to creatine. Astaxanthin, there's no reported negative side effects to astaxanthin. CBD, I have to go with you because I don't know the research on that, but it sounds like no real downside effect to CBD. So the keto monoester, expensive, maybe, Dr. Dr. Stubbs really demonstrated that the ketone ester in general has very little GI distress. So really, you can throw that out the window. Other than expense for the ketone ester, then really no downside effect, negative effect there. So anyways, just to the listeners, it's important that you walk away with the supplements that we're talking about right now. They either have an upside or at least no detriment to performance or metabolic health or cognition. And that's really important to me because that's when I'm talking to other people about it, you have to weigh the pros and cons of whatever you end up ingesting. Yeah, and definitely ketones. I've got all different types of ketone esters in my bag. I leave them in my car. And as soon as I, I'm able to, I would basically put myself in a high level of ketosis and then transition to a ketogenic diet and try to leave my ketone levels on the higher as opposed to the lower side. And yep. If listeners are interested, I did a whole program for the Kerrig Institute on the use of ketones, ketone esters, salts, and a ketogenic diet for potential TBI. So there's yeah, a very smart whole whole program on that if people want to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for all your time here today. I really appreciate all your knowledge and sharing everything with us. This has been awesome. I appreciate you having me. Like I said, you pulled me out of the woodworks and I just <laughs> looked down and saw it's already right at the end time i'm like man we barely scratched the surface on some of this stuff but you know mike i appreciate you man and you put out good work and look forward to hopefully getting a chat with you again yeah and thank you so much i really appreciate that we'll have to have you back on again for sure and if people i know you're just on social media now tell them where they can follow you i don't know if you have any openings for graduate students or anything like that anything you want to promote go for it yeah. So we've got a couple of different doc students, but two of them are in dissertation year. So if you're interested in some of the work I mentioned that my lab is doing, you can find me at the University of North Alabama. I just type my name in Hunter Waltman. You'll come across my email address. Feel free to shoot me an email. And then I'm on Instagram. I just brought that back. I actually brought back Twitter. And then as soon as I got on, <laughs> I saw how much negative talk was happening. I'm oh, like, no, I'm not reintroducing this back into my life. So I re-deleted it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I tried. I got my profile back just to say I got it back because then I yeah. kept getting banned for no apparent reason. And Uh-oh. I have it now. And I've been trying to limit my social media, at least consumption of it. Yeah. And Twitter is still 
I don't know, man. It's just dead last yeah, on the list. I, yeah, I don't. I know a lot yeah. of researchers are on there, but yeah. when I try to look this stuff up, I don't find any value added for myself personally. But yeah, yeah. So I've got Instagram. That's my personal page that I use, and really just brought it back for. I don't plan on doing my own podcast, so my thought was maybe I can make the science that we do accessible to the everyday person and that doesn't do research. And so if you want to find me on there, please feel free to. And that's pretty much it for right now. Great. And how, what's your name on Instagram for everybody? Yeah, I think it's the username. So we can find it. Yeah. Prof Waldman because Hunter Waldman and HS Waldman were both taken by who knows. So (laughs) you can find me prof period Waldman. You can find me on there. I'm sure if you just type in Hunter Waldman, you'll see me pop up as well. But yeah, yeah, please feel free to follow. I'll follow you back. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I would highly recommend people check out your stuff. I know you've got a lot of stuff coming out. And yeah, it's also a very good way, in my opinion, to get from researchers actually doing the research, explaining what's going on. I think that's always going to be a good source. Yeah. Awesome. Appreciate you, brother. Yeah. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. All right. Huge thanks to Dr. Hunter Waldman for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Uh, He's doing some really cool uh, research. Uh, Hoping we can look at some of the effects of ketone esters coming up again this uh, spring, possibly. I'm chatting with him about some potential uh, study designs, which would be super interesting. And thanks again to him for all the great info, all the great research. And if you enjoyed the podcast uh, here on Astaxanthine, also stay tuned for September 22nd podcast with Dr. Karen Heck. We will talk all about astaxanthin only on that podcast. She is a expert in the world of astaxanthin, so you don't want to miss that. Also, things you don't want to miss, the Physiologic Flexibility Certification. Open again September 18th through the 25th. If you want to learn how to become more resilient, more anti-fragile, generally just much harder to kill, and your nutrition and training and sleep are pretty decent. This is the level two to the Flex Diet Certification. Flex Diet Certification covers uh, mostly nutrition and recovery via sleep, although we do have some stuff on walking and exercise in there. You have all of the basics, the level one things that you would need to do for more muscle and better body composition. So once you've got that dialed in pretty good, The level two then is the physiologic flexibility certification. So we're taking those same ideas, but we're expanding it to you as an entire human organism. And the main question we're looking to resolve here is, once those are pretty good, where do you go next? Do you purchase a red light panel? Do you get supplements? Do you do hours and hours of zone two training? Because that's the thing. It gets to be very confusing And there's lots of, I'd say, sub-niche programs in this area. There's some great stuff on breathing. There's some great stuff on temperature adaptations. But the reason I created this was I didn't find anything that pulled all of those four areas together in a system that makes sense based on actual research. Uh, When I was creating this certification, I think I ended up reading, God, well over 350 studies. A bunch of them, sadly, never made it into the certification because they didn't fit. But it's actually based on real science. And the cool part is you'll learn about the theories, you'll learn about the specifics, and it's broken down so you will know exactly what to do with that information. 
I found a lot of certifications, they tell you some good info, but you're left with kind of vague notions of what do you actually do with it this time. And here you'll know exactly what to do with it. And similar to the Flex Diet certification, uh, it is led by what will be best for yourself or for the client. So it's a flexible approach. So go to the Physiologic Flexibility Certification at physiologicflexibility.com. It is open from September 18th through September 25th, 2023. If you have any questions, uh, please reach out to me. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Big thanks to Dr. Hunter Waldman for sharing all of his wealth of knowledge and all the great research uh, that he is doing. If you enjoyed this podcast, please forward it to someone you think may also enjoy it. Leave us a few stars or whatever you think is most appropriate on iTunes. And if you have even 30 seconds, leaving us a very short review goes a long way for us to get better distribution of the podcast, which, as you've realized, is just sponsored by me and the certifications. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Have a wonderful day, and we'll talk to all of you next week. Do you suppose they have any life on other planets? What do you care? You don't have any life on this one. (laughs) This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication, or nutritional, supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.